This is exactly right. I want all kids to feel like they are enough when they walk through that door. And I don't want them to mask the reasons that they don't feel enough or the reasons they don't feel like they can be loved or the reasons they don't feel like they deserve to take up space. And if we're constantly masking that, then we're never actually having to deal with the core issue. And that's what causes depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation and God forbid suicide. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan, and this show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. So excited to introduce our guest this morning, Jessica Leahy, who is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and her new book, which we'll be talking about in depth today, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Over, for over 20 years, Jess has taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools and also spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab program for adolescents in Vermont. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Atlantic, and is a book critic for Airmail. She also wrote the educational curriculum for the Amazon Kids award-winning The Stinky and Dirty Show. She is also a podcast expert as she co-hosts the Hashtag Am Writing podcast with best-selling authors KJ Delantonia and Serena Bowen from her house in Vermont, where she lives with her husband, two sons, and a whole lot of dogs. Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I love, love, love the way you describe your show because it's at the heart of so much of what I talk about, which is the way we as parents model um, the best possible lives, the best possible approach, learning, all that stuff for kids. Normally on these intros, I hear, you know, like focus on, you know, what we're supposed to do to children to make them better human beings, as opposed to the focus on what we can help model for our own kids in ourselves. I love it. Oh, well, thank you. And um, that is the reason I also just love your writing and um, have been following your work for quite some time and looking forward to this talk because there's such alignment there. And, um, you know, your your previous book, your bestseller, uh, The Gift of Failure, you really hit on gosh, like we need to look at ourselves and it starts with us parents about what we're doing and what we're not doing um, as opposed to, like you said, with this world of um, more tutors, more sports, more, 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 more fix, 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 fix. And um, I think we complicate it and then uh, find ourselves digging out of a hole if we become aware enough to know what's going on. Well, the fun thing about my job, I, I think I have the coolest job in the world, which is to either get curious about something or really screw something up and then <laughs> research for a couple of years to get to the bottom of how I screwed it up or what it is I'm curious about and then translate it for people who don't want to do all of the dorky research. So, you know, everything I write comes out of something that I'm either, you know, I'm either curious about because, you know, the question came up in my head or because I really did, you know, come at something the wrong way, either because I had the wrong information or I thought I understood what was happening and I didn't. And just trying to be a better person and a better teacher and a better parent uh, all the time. And so, you know, that's what's so fun about this is that I'm in the mix too. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm out here screwing these things up and trying to be the best kind of parent I can be as well. So I, you know, yeah. it's, it's a pretty cool job. While being, um, and just getting a sense of who you are from interviews and your mm -hmm. books and how you parent from reading your books. I mean, authenticity and transparency and honesty seems to be, um, pillars, uh, in terms of your core. Yeah. And it's funny cause I didn't, 
I thought that was just sort of a thing I did. I didn't think about it much. Um, I've always been a very, I've tried to be a very transparent person. And it wasn't until I wrote The Addiction Inoculation and there was this whole this whole sort of theme underneath it of, you know, the fact that when I was a kid, I was not allowed to talk, not allowed to talk about my parents' alcoholism. I was not allowed to bring up addiction in any way, shape or form. Um, I, there was just so much unsaid that was not allowed to be talked about. And then, you know, when I, before I got sober, I spent a decade, you know, hiding a big chunk of my life, um, you know, even to the people closest to me who I thought, you know, for the most part, really knew everything about me. And I hadn't realized, you know, it's, it, it's another smack in the face of, yeah, this thing that I've been doing, um, is for a very solid reason. It's out of, it was, you know, out of fear of replicating the sort of harm that was done to me in terms of, you know, not being allowed to talk about something, the elephant, as Susan Cheever calls it, the elephant in the middle of the room that is mm -hmm. addiction, um, that, you know, tends to stomp on things and takes up a lot of room and yet we're not allowed to acknowledge it. And realizing that, you know, I spent a whole decade, you know, hiding an entire part of myself. And that was exhausting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> so. and, and I think, um, as we'll talk about, uh, for the listeners to just be educated more, of course, about your experience and, and, um, and the research and what, and the recommendations are, I was, um, I mean, it was astonished and I think it's important to talk about how high functioning so, so your dad says, you know, at a very poignant moment, Hey, uh, honey, you know, I know what an alcoholic looks like. And so my, my little parallel, um, I'm going to take a, uh, a, um, a chance here with you is like, um, Jess, I know what a perfectionist looks like, um, as, <laughs> yeah. as one in recovery yeah. myself, yeah. um, for you to be functioning at the level that you were functioning. And when I say functioning, parenting, spousing, mm -hmm. teaching, writing. I mean, you were already a well-known, accomplished journalist, writer at that time. And you were doing all of this. And so it's sort of, you know, I could see how for you, like, oh, am I, am I really an alcoholic? And for others, yeah. it's like, no, alcoholics don't look like that. No, they, they don't, they don't look like that. Well, I, there's this in recovery, there are a lot of people that I met, um, you know, after I got sober in 2013, I started meeting a lot of people just like me, people who, you know, very high functioning, I hate that term sort of, you know, high functioning yeah. alcoholic, uh, yeah. but essentially people who were getting the job done. But for me, there was, uh, so I was teaching full time. I had more than a full time schedule. I was teaching like six different preps in, you know, in a seven period day. And I was writing pretty much full time after school. And when I got the book deal for The Gift of Failure in 2013, part of what instigated change for me was the realization that not only was I about to have a lot of really terrible things happen, you know, I hadn't been driving drunk. I hadn't been, you know, my, my drinking hadn't intruded on the school day, but all of those things were just about to happen. I was, I was set to lose everything. It was about to go down. It was about to go down big and I was going, I would lose everything. Um, and so I was very fortunate in that, uh, you know, my dad came to me with those words at just the right time, but he also understood that, you know, not only did he just care for me, he also realized I had been given this incredible opportunity to write this book, which is really something I'd wanted my entire life and I was going to blow it. So mm. one of the things that I talk about a lot with this book is this book is all about, you know, figuring out what risk factors are, figuring out how to apply prevention in order to, um, you know, at least even the score, even the, you know, the scale. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's no guarantee that what we do because of this book, if I, ch if you change the way you parent or educate or whatever will can actually, you know, there's no guarantees here. We can't, you know, mm -hmm. say, oh, well, I've done these things. So now my kids will never have substance use disorder. But I think the reality for me was that I had many pieces of the puzzle put into place so that when my dad sat at the end of that bed, that hundredth piece of the hundred piece puzzle could click mm -hmm. into place. Mm -hmm. And that's all I can hope for with this book. You know, I'm, I, I hope every day that my kids will escape the fate I had to, you know, what I had to go through in terms of, you know, being an alcoholic and being exhausted and anxious and all that stuff and all the stuff that goes along with being an alcoholic or being a drug addict. But 
I hope that some of the stuff that I've done with them um, by way of prevention, actually, if they do end up having a problem, that the hundredth piece will come mm. earlier, that they'll maybe, you know, if they end up drinking too much or drugging, they'll start with like 40 pieces of the puzzle kind of in place because I've been hammering this stuff home with them for so long and it will take them less time in order mm. to get to that 100th piece. So I have a, there's a, an unspoken goal here of yeah. you know, getting kids to that place quicker. Well, and I really like that approach that gives me comfort. Um, as I was, you know, our kids are similar ages. So I've been in the trenches with, uh, the challenges, um, with this mm -hmm. in this day and age. And, um, I'm reading your book uh, and checking box. Okay, yeah, yeah, we did that. Yeah, we did that. Oh, no, I don't know that we did that. Or, oh, I uh, could have done that one a lot better. And and then that fear comes in of like, oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah. And, and so this, but I, what you're saying is for our listeners is, you know, and this is what this show is all about. Like we are, all we can do is be the best people we can right. be. Right. And our kids are going to be who they're going to be with our guidance, but we can't control it. We can only do the best we can on our journey, yeah. on their journey. Well, and the fun, the I think the interesting part of this book, the part that's been really challenging for me has been how to present this book without making people feel bad. Like if, if you have a risk factor, if your kid has risk factors and, you know, my kids came into this world with an increased risk for, for, for a substance use disorder because of their genetics. So that's mm -hmm. like 50 to 60% of the picture there. And then there's this list of adverse childhood experiences that increase risk as well. And some really common things are on that list, like divorce and separation and adoption and things like that. Mm -hmm. So the last thing I want parents to do is to say, oh, great. Now I'm in huge trouble and I feel shame and I feel guilt and that makes me even, you know, want to talk about it less. Um, I think face it. And that's why I had to face so many of the things that I'd thrown in the path of my kids. And, and, and frankly, you know, I came at this when my kids were a little bit older. So we've changed the way we're parenting um, our younger kid versus our older kid around substances right. because I learned stuff. And now we're back to your modeling thing where all I can do is hope that my kid sees that as pissed off as, as he is with me, that we've he's getting the short end of the stick and we're much more strict around substance use with him than we were with his older um, brother. Mm -hmm. But all I can hope is that he looks at me and he says, oh, okay, well, she was doing the best she could based on the information she had. She learned new information. She did a mea culpa and she's changing what she does based on having new information. And for me to do anything less would be to say to him, hey, I know that this is not what's best for you, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's easier for me or because I don't want to talk about it or because it's too uncomfortable for me. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, he's he's not thrilled that our, our take has changed, but at the same time, um, I'm only doing the very thing I want to see mm -hmm. in him. Mm -hmm. Let's um, let's talk about some of the and again to, to reiterate for everyone listening, um, this is all information to empower you and um, and to educate stuff that, right. that we didn't that we didn't get when we were growing up. Um, you maybe get a little of it in graduate school if you happen to take those classes, but it's like you don't get this information and and this is really important information. So with that said. Let's talk about some of those risk factors. As you already said, it's 50 to 60% of a genetic load just by mm -hmm. being born into a family. Right. Um, let's talk about these other, those other risk factors, which like you said, they just sort of put more stuff on the scale. They don't mm -hmm. guarantee anything, but right. they do put more stuff on the scale. And we need to know about it. Well, and even the genetics are not destiny. I mean, my, my husband... Uh, was born into a family. His genetic load for for substance abuse is probably as just what mine is, but he doesn't. You know, he's part of ninety percent of the population that doesn't have this weird brain chemistry and weird body that just reacts differently to drugs and alcohol. Um, he got very very lucky. So it's not genetics mm -hmm. or not destiny. And then overlapping genetics and environment is this thing called epigenetics, which is um, sort of you know, the way we're treated as kids, the things we have to under, the things we have to deal with, the things we experience, they can actually change the way our genes express themselves. So there's not a ton we can do about that either, except once we get into the topic of um, 
There's this really horrible analogy that I hate, but I I do have to use it, which is genetics are the bullet we load into the gun and trauma is the trigger. So that bullet of the 50 to 60% risk right there from the genetics can sit there forever and hurt nobody um, unless there's some trauma that pulls that trigger. And I think since trauma is what we can control in some way, shape, or form, or at least we can control our reaction to it, that's where I put a lot of my effort, um, especially since the genetics thing is not something super simple like, oh, there's this one gene, and if we just knock out that one gene and we'd fix it, right. that's not how it works. So when I talk about trauma, I'm talking about big T, little t trauma. I'm talking about adverse childhood experiences as defined by both the CDC um, and as defined as expanded on by Nadine Burke-Harris in her brilliant book, The Deepest Well. Mm -hmm. Um, The CDC's list is, and you can take a quiz. You can go to Google CDC and ACEs and quiz, and you can pull up that quiz and take it yourself. The higher your number on that quiz, the higher your risk for not just substance use disorder, but heart attack, stroke, obesity, you know, all kinds of, um, all kinds of outcomes that are unhealthy. And, and, you know, and that, that is, again, not just about, that's information. It's information that you can use to empower yourself and to change your behaviors based on that information. And then Nadine Burke-Harris adds, uh, so anyway, the CDC lists are things like, you know, an incarcerated parent living in poverty, uh, you know, a, a parent with, uh, someone in the home with substance use disorder, death of a parent, um, uh, abuse, um, physical and sexual abuse is a massive risk factor for substance use disorder. Um and then there's other things on that list, like uh, that Nadine Burke Harris adds to that list. There's, you know, divorce and separation and adoption and things like that. And then on top of those ACEs, there's also things like academic failure, social ostracism, kid on kid aggression. If, mm-hmm. if your child is aggressive towards other children, that's something that really needs to be looked at early because a lot of these um, risk factors get intertwined and intermingled. And then you get to a point where if they're not dealt with, you can't really tell which is the which is the chicken and which is the egg mm-hmm. um, because social ostracism can lead to aggression or aggression can lead to social ostracism and you know academic failure can lead to social ostracism. And then on top of that, there are other things like um, there are risk periods. Transitions are a particularly risky time, especially like the transition between middle school and high school. So those are important to keep in mind. Um, so I think of the risk and protections as, you know, like one of those old timey scales of justice where the heavier the risk side is, the heavier the protection side is. And more specific, the mm-hmm. risks, the protection side is going to have to be to outweigh that um, those risks. So let's try really hard to look at these risk factors as empowering information that we can use in order to more precisely hone the preventions that we mm-hmm. give kids mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, guilt and shame and all that kind of stuff right, that tends right. to keep us sick. Yes. Um, and we we're going to get to all of those preventions, everyone. So hold tight. Before, <laughs> there's still more great data, uh, Jess, that you uncovered. And I was... Um, I guess pleasantly surprised that the longer we can keep our kids from using dramatic decrease yeah. in adulthood substance mm-hmm. use disorders, dramatic, if you can get to 18, if you can get to 21. Yeah. yeah. So whenever I talk about prevention, I'm talking about it from two sides. When we talk about prevention from for kids, what we're talking about is the fact that children's brains, adolescents' brains are not adult brains. Drugs and alcohol that can carry a moderate risk, a mild to moderate risk in an adult brain, can be moderate to high risk in a an adolescent's brain. And that's because an adolescent's brain is not finished developing until the early to mid-20s. All of the stuff that we get so frustrated with our teenagers about, um, the adulting stuff, the like time and organization and time management and planning ahead and weighing consequences, all of those things that drive us bananas, that's the last part of the brain. That's the frontal lobe. And that's the sort of executive function frontal lobe adulting part of the brain. And that doesn't come online until the early to mid 20s. So when you mess with the adolescent brain, you're messing with that. You're also messing with memory. Um, uh, for example, um, kids who are chronic users of, no pun, no pun intended, kids who are uh, heavy users of, of marijuana um, 
have smaller hippocampuses than kids who don't because the receptors that we're talking about when we talk about the active ingredients in cannabis are, you know, in and around the hippocampus. And if the hippocampus is busy dealing with that stuff, um, it just doesn't have a chance to develop the same way. And the hippocampus is all about memory and memory formation and emotional memory storage. And it's a really important part of the brain. And um, so there are things, you know, marijuana in adults and marijuana in adolescents, those are two very different subjects. Those are apples and oranges. So I am in no way saying that adults can't use drugs and alcohol, let alone that adults can't use drugs and alcohol around their kids. It's just a very different topic. The other side of this is, you're correct, the longer we prevent, the longer we delay first use for kids, the lower their lifelong risk of substance use disorder will be. And there are some causation correlation issues there. You can see that, you know, a kid who starts really early may be in an environment where there's more substances available, that kind of thing. But when you look at an eighth grader who starts using, which, by the way, I need for parents to not email me shocked, shocked that they found out that their middle school kid has tried drugs or alcohol because that's the age at which kids initiate if they're going right. to initiate. Right. So, right. So an eighth grader who tries uh, drugs and alcohol has about a 50% chance, a risk of having substance use disorder during their lifetime. Whereas if we can get them to just 18, I mean, if kids are in the room, I'm going to say 21, but if we can get them to just 18, we lower that risk down to 10%, which is what it is in the general population, the Mm -hmm. the, the 10% that I belong to, which is the other reason, by the way, and I want to slip this in here, that we can't teach kids moderation. All those parents who are working so hard and and thinking, oh, you know, uh, that romantic European myth of raising a kid who can sip and have some Mm -hmm. with dinner. And I can teach them to be a moderate drinker by making it no big deal in our home. You can't teach moderation. I cannot learn moderation. I'm just not wired that way. Mm -hmm. So if your kid is predisposed, if they're part of that 10%, you can let them sip all you want. And all you're going to do for all kids, actually, not just for kids in that 10%, you raise their risk over their lives of having substance use disorder. So all the excuses like, you know, yes, but in Europe, well, in Europe has the high, the European Union has the highest level of alcohol consumption in the entire world. And so that European moderation myth is a huge myth. And the more permissive we are, like that whole, you know, oh, kids are going to do it anyway, so I'm going to let them do it in the basement. I'll take everybody's keys so that no one gets hurt. You are increasing your child's risk of having substance use disorder over their lifetime, full mm-hmm. stop. Mm-hmm. We need to stop with these like myths that make us feel good and make it easier for us to look cool to our kids, which the ship has sailed on that one. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm never going to be cool to my kids. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I have a pretty cool career. I get to be on national television all the time and I'm never, ever going to be cool to my kids ever. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, let's, let's do what's best for them as opposed to what's, what Mm -hmm. feels best for us. So a few clarify God, I want to go in several different directions here. Okay. So, um, for clarification, Teenagers, young adults, adults, are you are you saying that moderation is not possible with young people and or it's certainly not possible with the 10 percent? I'm saying for especially for the 10 percent, you can't teach moderation. Right. Right. And that for everyone. If you allow sipping or you have a party in the basement and take everyone's keys, what you are conveying is a permissive stance around substance use. Mm -hmm. And that permissive stance around substance use increases a child's lifelong risk of substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, A, it's illegal and, you know, that's aiding and abetting. And B, if you're involving other kids in that, mm-hmm. that's a massive issue. Like, especially for me, you know, my kids are at increased risk of substance use disorder. And so if I were to find out that my kids were having alcohol at someone else's house, just because that parent felt like it would right. allow their kid to be safer, that's a problem as well. So yeah, for clarification, mm-hmm. the it, when parents have a clear and consistent message of no, not until it is legal, and it's not really about legality, it's about brain development for right. me, right. Um, those kids have lower risk of substance use disorder, which is 
is why we switched. I mean, I have a 22-year-old and I have a 17-year-old. The 22-year-old was allowed sips. The 22-year-old, um, you know, was allowed to have a beer when he after he turned 18. My 17-year-old is living in a home where it, he will not be allowed in our home or out in the world. Our expectation is clear and consistent that no, not until he is 21 and it is legal for him. Um, and, and we explain why. It's not a because we said so. It's because yeah. your brain is still developing and we value your brain and we value your life and your risk of developing substance use disorder is high to begin with. And if you uh, start drinking or using before you're 21, it, it gets even higher. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, as I said, I can only hope that he can look at that and say okay, and understand where we're coming from with that information and that we're just doing the best we have based on the information we have. Yeah, perhaps one day. I'm guessing not right now. <laughs> you know, it, what's yeah. really interesting is my kids are very um, my kids love to debate. Um, we do. We do a lot of debating around here. We do. We have a family text thread that's often about politics and economics and economic theory and political theory and stuff like that. So my kids do love to debate stuff and they love to punch holes in our theories. And so when we have data, when we have, you know, something to back up our because we said so, um, that is going to hold a lot more water with our yeah. kids than, yeah. Yeah. than just because I, well, and uh, teenagers, especially, you know, the more we do know, by the way, that the more we control kids without, especially without that sort of here's why, um, the more deceptive kids get. Um, so kids who are right. highly controlled lie to their parents more. So right. I want my kids to understand my reasoning so that it isn't a matter of I'm just telling you to do this and you have to respect me just because I'm your parent or you have to respect my decision just because you're my, I'm your parent. That, mm -hmm. that isn't going to work well with most adolescents. It's not. And um, I, I mean, I like that approach and have had more success with it, too, uh, in my home is it's, it's treating our kids with respect yeah. as having as being human beings who are good thinkers, who have good reasons and um, have legitimate have legitimate arguments to come from their perspective and that we need to listen to them mm -hmm. and, and have this debate and this dialogue and then agree to disagree. You know, like it's kind of a, yeah. you're not wrong, but I, 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 I understand I felt the same way when I was your age. And now with what we know, these are the rules that we have for your health. And we just are going to have to disagree about this right now. And the reason that I explain so much about how the adolescent brain works is I think it becomes much easier to understand and be less angered by slash frustrated by some teen behavior when you understand why it's happening. You know, mm -hmm. there's this myth that kids can't understand the consequences of their behavior, and that's just not true. Mm -hmm. It's just that adolescents weigh the p possible benefits of a particular behavior, especially risky behavior, more heavily than they weigh the possible negative outcomes. So yeah. if we understand that, and if we understand, for example, that teenagers also hate being manipulated, and one of the things that's happening in marketing of um, drugs and alcohol to kids is that they are being manipulated, and so capitalize on that and explain mm -hmm. to them how they're being manipulated and how um, much money a brand loyalty, for example, to a brand of beer is worth to a company, mm -hmm. um, how their favorite sports team, it isn't random that those beer logos are right behind, you know, the 50 yard line or the bench or whatever, because they want kids to see that. And they know down to the dollar amount, how much it is worth per shot it during a game. Mm -hmm. So the more kids can understand the reasoning behind the things that we say to them about, you know, no, not until it's legal for you. Um, here's why my, you know, this is why I'm saying the things I'm saying, the more they, the more likely they are to respect us for those opinions. Mm-hmm. And what I what I really what really has been soaking in to me is as when you talk about the culture, the culture of of use, the culture of alcohol, mm -hmm. the culture of drugs. And there's there's two types of cultures. We have the macro culture and then we have our home culture from a macro perspective, um, how alcohol has been so inextricably connect woven into our society. Yeah. You, you talk about is it the pilgrims brought four parts alcohol to one part <laughs> water on the way over something like that 
Well, I mean, and you have to, the background there is that they really did believe that drink, that fresh water was poison. And, and that came from a whole, you know, in Europe, the, the waterways were used as sewers and they didn't, and because this is pre-Pasteur, they didn't understand that it was the boiling of the water and not the addition of the hops and the, all that other stuff. So for them, beer was, you know, the, the only option in terms of, something that wouldn't kill them. So there was some understanding there, but, and, you know, Susan Cheever in one of her books about, um, about the history of alcohol in this country says, you know, it's a little bit of an overgeneralization, but she says in that book that, you know, the reason the pilgrims landed where they did was because they were out of beer and it really isn't, you know, it's not entirely true, but it's pretty close. So yeah. 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 And the bourbon wars were a significant time in history. I mean, we, in prohibition. So it's part of our culture, but really when we think about our home, think about your home for listeners, think about your home culture, think about your extended family culture. Um, and again, this is not about shaming or fear. This is just to really think about what our kids see. They're like they're always watching, they're, they model after us. I mean, you know, we know we grow up to be our parents even when we don't want to, right? So it's like they're taking all this in and really what you're talking about is to really be aware of what are the messages that we're giving younger people about alcohol drug use. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, my my one of my big points is I'm not saying you can't drink in front of your kids. What I am saying is that the messaging around why you're drinking is really important. And if, you know, the whole, um, you know, mommy wine culture of, you know, oh, parenting is so hard that I just I need this wine at the end of the day or today at work was so hard that I just need this wine at the end of the day or, um, oh, we're going to Thanksgiving at grandma's, there better be enough wine there because this is going to suck. You know, that kind of, (laughs) I am drinking in order to not deal with some messy emotions that I don't want to deal with. And, you know, that's really hard because the drink that I miss the most to this day, I'm almost eight years into recovery. the, The drink I miss the most is the one I now can't have right before I go to a dinner party because Mm -hmm. I get imposter syndrome. I have social anxiety sometimes, and it, it would be so much easier for me if I could just have a glass of wine before I walk over that threshold so I could have a little bit of liquid courage. And I get that and I Mm -hmm. understand it, but I don't, I want my kids, you know, as much as it is painful to feel like you are less than, or you don't deserve to be somewhere. What I want for kids, not just my kids, but my students all, you know, I want all kids to feel like they are enough when they walk through that door. And I don't want them to mask the reasons that they don't feel enough or the reasons they don't feel like they can be loved or the reasons they don't feel like they deserve to take up space. And if we're constantly masking that, then we're never actually having to deal with the core issue. And that's what Mm -hmm. causes depression and anxiety and suicidal Mm -hmm. ideation and God forbid Mm -hmm. suicide. Mm -hmm. Those my big goal for this book is to make, and for everything I do as a teacher, as a writer, is to help f- kids feel heard and seen and known and let them know that they deserve to be loved and they deserve to be in this world um, no matter what. And mm-hmm. that the things we do, the things we ingest, the things we take into our bodies in order to make it so we don't have to deal with that mm-hmm. are not helping us. And in many cases, they're exacerbating, for example, anxiety, it, mm-hmm. you know, drinking works great in the short term, worked great for me in the short term to um, help with my anxiety. And yet over the long term, it made it much, much worse. Yeah. And so speaking of liquid courage in a time of life where there tends to be an increase in drinking and especially binge drinking in college, um, mm-hmm. other information, which was really interesting. And again, this is parents to listen about, like to think about your kids and think about risk factors is there is an increase, uh, largely in the, like the Greek system, but, mm-hmm. um, beyond as well, there's an increase in binge drinking through those years. And what you found was that people who are binge drinking and drinking social to drink socially versus ones who are self-medicating pain mm-hmm. and distress have a very different long-term um, yeah. abuse rate from percentage-wise. Right. There, there are two... This is an oversimplification again, mm-hmm. but there are essentially two kinds of drinkers. There are two, you know, drinkers who uh, drink or use drugs in order to elevate an already fun, great social situation. Um, and then there are people who drink because they are in pain. And, mm-hmm. you know, the receptors in our brain for physical pain and emotional pain are the same. And so it's the reason that, you know, opioids work so well to help kids, you know, 
self-treat their sexual abuse or their depression or their pain of just the angst of being alive. And so once we realize that, it it helps because then I can say, okay, well, yes, I am concerned about my kids um, drinking on the weekends, doing some binge drinking on the weekends because binge drinking is inherently dangerous. Um, But at the same time, if I know that my kid is drinking when they're alone or drinking in order to feel better, drinking in order to not feel pain, then I know that we've got a much more difficult situation on our hands because Mm -hmm. the question I get over and over again is, okay, my kid is using, but how do I know where that line is between using and abuse, dependence, Mm -hmm. abuse, you know, where is that line happening? And if we know that there are signals that we can watch for to know whether our kid is treating depression or whatever they're treating, and I use treating loosely, mm-hmm. um, and and for example, kids who are you know uh, uh, ADHD, untreated ADHD, there's there are entire there's an entire book actually about the reasons that um, you know a lot of people pick up marijuana in order to treat um, their ADHD, and it works yep. great in the short term, doesn't right. work so great in the long term. And uh, boy, if you're forgetful with ADHD in the first place, and then you add pot on top of that, you're in big trouble. But understanding the reasons that kids are using are as important as are sometimes more important than understanding that they are using. And the only way kids will talk to us about why they're using is if we are talking to them about it on a consistent basis and from a place of, of without judgment. That's key. Absolutely key. You just did a nice segue to um, you talked about marijuana and mm-hmm. you know the 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 gateway the gateway drugs. Um, this is really much more complicated than we used to think. This leads to this, and this leads to this. So, could you please tell everyone what you found with the different roads to use and dependence? Yeah. There's this thing that came up called the gateway hypothesis, which is, you know, you try cigarettes and then you try beer and then and then you'll move on to marijuana or you'll move on to hard alcohol. And while there are still some truths in that pathway for some kids, it's not true for all kids. And in the past, we've also used this gateway hypothesis um, or at least drugs that may, quote, break the gateway hypothesis like crack was seen to do in the 80s um, as veiled uh, racism as well. And this actually just came up during the George Floyd trial as well. Mm -hmm. Um, There was the feeling that because he had fentanyl in his body, that that somehow turned him into like a superhuman who could, you know, resist bullets. That was what they used to say in the 80s about crack, that, you know, like black men on crack are so superpower strong that you can shoot them and it won't even take them down like some sort of bad ending to a horror movie. Um, And that you know, that was a fear, uh, you know, that was sort of a scared straight sort of tactic. And we know those don't work. And mm-hmm. uh, anyway, yeah. so there are certain, um, the gateway hypothesis does hold water in the sense that we know for a fact that kids who vape are more likely to move on to regular cigarettes. We do know that kids who drink beer, if they're going, if, if they're going to progress in their drinking, will move on to harder alcohol. Um, but again, not all kids who try beer are going to move on to harder alcohol. We have to keep this in mind that, you know, for 90% of kids, um, there isn't going to be this like, you know, lockstep move, Mm -hmm. you know, and then there, and then there are um, ethnic and racial disparities between, you know, some kids can, will use marijuana before they use alcohol. In some places, it's easier for them. And I I remember a conversation I had with my kids um, a long time ago. I think they were, my oldest was like in middle school. And I said, if you were to go out right now, which would be easier for you to get marijuana or tobacco cigarettes? And he said, oh, marijuana, definitely. Because tobacco cigarettes, you know, are, you have to go to the store and you have to have the, you know, it's, it's just, but uh, and and you know you I can get on you know social media right now and have someone drop some at the end of our driveway um, you know in a secret location we've you know agreed on which is you know what got difficult during lockdown a lot of people thought well you know my kid won't have access to their dealer right. and that right. was just right. so not true no. <laughs> no but but yeah the the gateway hypothesis is problematic only be only in so far as we tend to be we as humans tend to be really black and white thinkers. Um, I like the gray area. And, uh, so that's where, 
you know, like the, there's an entire, and sorry to diverge for a second, but there's a whole chapter in the book on peers and peer influence. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the party line is also, has always been, if your kids hang around with other kids who use drugs and alcohol, then your kids are more likely to use drugs and alcohol. And while that is generally true, just in terms of access and in terms mm-hmm. of influence and normalizing, it's not always true. And so, Mm-hmm. And we know that telling your kids you can't be friend with that friends with that kid is basically yeah, Ro- the number Romeo one way to make them exactly. exactly. It's the number yeah. one way to make them want to be friends with that kid. Right. So what do we do with that information? Yeah. So I beg yeah. parents always to be thinking a little bit more instead of. I know it's easy to look at um, the media and say, okay, here's the rule, and this is. Set in stone, it's black and white, and and that's just not how it is. And luckily, my background in education policy, um, which is just as t- has a tendency to be just as black and white as drug and alcohol prevention um, policy, <laughs> uh, prepared me well for this. There's a mm-hmm. ton of gray area, and not a lot of things we can hang on to as black and white absolutes. Mm-hmm. So everyone, listen to those. Listen to Jess's words. I mean, as as you're taking your inventory right now um, for yourself, for your children, like there is a lot of gray. Gray is uncomfortable for us. Like we don't, we like things to be absolute. And again, this is information to guide us. This is to inform us. Um, so other factors that um, are different for those of us raising um, young humans now than when we were growing up. We have um, marijuana, which is legalized in many states. We have marijuana, which is way more powerful and potent than Mm -hmm. um, back in the day. And we also have an opioid epidemic, which that didn't really exist um, when we were growing up. So I feel like there's this... we're at the age I'll speak of myself, like at the age, like we don't know what it's like, like we had our experience, but Mm -hmm. it's, 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 there's some similarities, but there's differences in context uh, for our kids these days. There is, but I also would ask that we just keep the focus on the, that chapter in the book on brain development and why kids do the things that they do and understanding that, the adolescent brain is built to crave novelty. And that mm-hmm. is really important to not just understand, but to honor. Because the role of an adol- of adolescence is to help kids pull away from their family of origin and to become their own human being and to figure out who they want to be in the world. And the only way they can do that is by trying things that are risky, scary, novel to them. And drugs and alcohol often a- offer a way to see the world from a new angle. You know, there's uh, Michael Pollan just wrote about this beautifully in his book, How to Change Your Mind, about his experimentation with um, psychedelics. And it's, it's humans have this, humans in general, but adolescents in particular, have this compulsive need to have, to experience novelty and in ways that is sometimes not safe for them. So it is our job as parents and educators to understand why that happens, to honor the fact that that happens and to help guide them towards positive risk and novelty situations. And, you know, thank goodness I, you know, for me writing this book was revelatory because um, in the book, I talk about the fact that I presented my kid with a massive amount of risk by moving to Vermont, Mm -hmm. where pot's legal, where he didn't know anyone, where we didn't know anyone. I moved him away from his friends. I moved him away from his friends who have parents who I respect and adore and, and share, you know, ethics and boundaries with. And in doing that, I was freaked out. I was completely freaked out. I'd thrown all of this risk in his path. And I was interviewing Dr. Dan Siegel about his work in the book Aware and in Mindsight. And he said, Jess, you could think of it that way in terms of risk and see it that way, or you could do what's best for you and for your kid and reframe that in terms of opportunity. Because what is a move but an opportunity for all kinds of positive risk and novelty. Mm. And reframing is one of the most, in fact, that's why there's an entire excerpt from the book that's in the New York Times on 
reframing and self-efficacy because helping kids reframe, helping ourselves reframe the way we view par- the parenting decisions we make, I think is one of the more positive things we can do for our kids. That And mm-hmm. that comes back to your point about modeling. Mm-hmm. You know, the more I'm modeling a um, positive reframing of all kinds of stuff that we're facing, including COVID, you know, COVID sucks and it really sucks for, you know, I'm angry as all get out for my 17 year old who mm-hmm. has for the past year and a half had no social life. I mean, can you imagine being 16 and 17 and not being able to go out on a date ever? Right. I mean, right. It, it, it's, it's so infuriating. And yet there have been positive aspects that have come out of this. And mm-hmm. every once in a while, it's really important for us to help reframe that for them to improve their view of the world and to help them sort of feel like they have some control and self-efficacy in this world. Uh, Dan, Dr. Dan Siegel is a very, very wise man. And I know many folks listening are familiar with uh, his work, uh, which has been uh, groundbreaking in so many ways. And I hope he's not mad at me that in the section where I talked about my attempts to do, um, there's actually an afterword on, I did attempt to do some of the meditation, the sort of be mindfulness practices that he recommends in aware. And I tried it with my 17 year old and it didn't last a whole month, but here's the cool thing. Mm. Since I finished the book, I found out that my son has been meditating on a regular basis. He just didn't want to do it with me. So like I offered him one way to do Uh, this. He actually has, he stole my, I have one of those buckwheat meditation, buckwheat hull meditation pillows Mm -hmm. and he took it and it's and I was up in his room doing something, and he has a little meditation space that he has created in his room. And I found out I had no idea that it wasn't that he didn't want to meditate or didn't want to practice mindfulness. He just didn't want to do it the way I wanted to do it. And awesome. yeah, it's been really cool. So I'm I have yeah. a huge debt of gratitude to awesome. Dr. Dan Siegel. Well, and so we are in these tricky positions as parents because our kids, um, they need us and they don't want us and we're their guides and they want to do it on their own. And um, so let's move towards how do we do this, right? How do you talk, mm-hmm. you started to talk about self, self-efficacy, self which is a mm-hmm. really important um, cope skill, identity, coping skill. Like, let's start, t- talk about the highlights yeah. of what you learned about yeah. how do we inoculate our kids? So the word inoculation in the title comes from a very real place, not just because it sounded like a cool thing and or because my husband is an infectious diseases physician. <laughs> um, it comes from a, a, a theory, inoculation theory is really cool. It um, And I had no idea. I'd heard about refusal skills, like teaching kids refusal skills in, in good substance abuse prevention, pro- substance use prevention programs, like rehearsing with them, like if someone comes to them and says, you know, do you want to drink? And they say no. And how do you say no? And how do you make it be effective? So the refusal skills is one thing, but inoculation theory encompasses refusal skills, but is even cooler because it turns out that when we give kids the opportunity to um, feel like they have ammunition for when they are presented with a weakened version of, you know, come on, everyone does it, or, you know, someone pressuring them to have sex before they're ready, or someone pressuring them to get in a car with someone who's been drinking, any kind of risk behavior that we really want our kids not to engage in, the more they feel like they are empowered with actual tools to be able to get out of that situation, they are then more likely to use those tools to get out of that situation if it ever arises. And it generalizes. So when, if we, for example, teach kids how to get out of a situation with substances that they're not interested in being a part of, we're also protecting them from other risky behaviors like sex before they're ready or getting into a car with a drunk driver. So inoculation theory is pretty Mm -hmm. magical and um, I'm so glad I know about it now. Um, You mentioned self-efficacy and I want to mention really quickly that self-efficacy is this really cool um, thing where it's the sense that we have the ability to, if we were to enact a decision or enact change in our lives, that that actual change will happen. Like if we were to make a decision about wanting something to change that we can act and that thing will happen. It's actually folded into what I see as a bigger picture, which has to do with the the actual definition of hope. Um, the late, great Shane Lopez, who I miss terribly, who wrote a wonderful book called Making Hope Happen. He worked for Gallup. He was just a brilliant human being. Um, he defines hope as 
the ability to envision that your world, your life, the world around us can be a better place and the power to make it so. So think of self-efficacy as the power to make it so, Mm. but we really need people in our lives that give us hope. And I'm not talking about, you know, this isn't a fluffy, you know, frills, frosting on the cake kind of thing. This is, um, according to Valerie Mahomes, who does research on... um, on intergenerational poverty and how we raise kids out of that. She pins, well, I hate to say it this way, but her hope is on hope. She says, mm-hmm. you know, when kids, we know for a fact that when kids have incurred, have encountered all kinds of really horrible trauma in their childhood, that the one thing that can really make a huge difference is that one adult in their life who gives them hope that things can be better and helps them feel as if they have the power to make it so. Mm. So self-efficacy and hope are real and optimism, um, mm-hmm. again, thanks to, you know, uh, a bunch of different, there's so much great research out there on optimism, but all of that is all sort of tied together in a really important bundle um, that's, mm-hmm. that's, you know, reframing is a part of that as well. So that's important. Talking from early, uh, talking about drugs and alcohol early and often, um, Mm -hmm. but not just about, you know, when I looked at the programs that are actually effective, that are evidence-based and effective. um, And for that, I was mostly looking at school-based or nonprofit-based programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are really, spoiler alert, just great SEL, social emotional learning programs with health components. Um, Those programs start need to start as early as nursery school and kindergarten. And again, we're not talking about crystal methamphetamine with a, you know, with a kindergartner. What we're talking about is, you know, why do we spit the toothpaste out instead of swallowing it? Why do we wash our hands? Why do we wear a mask? Why do we, um, you know, can you find mommy's name, the letters of mommy's name on this prescription pill bottle? And why do you think mommy's name is even on that bottle? If you had that sickness that mommy has, could could you just take the same medicine that mommy takes? And that leads, you know, in a developmentally appropriate way into conversations about, you know, the dangers of taking medicines out of someone's medicine cabinet, because we know, for example, we know that most, the vast majority of parents know that kids get their first opiate. If they're going to experiment with them, they get their first opiate out of someone else's or your own medicine cabinet. And yet only 10% of parents talk to their kids about that. So Mm -hmm. we need to start really early about sort of general health and safety and refusal skills and and um, inoculation theory and keeping our bodies safe and speaking up for ourselves when someone is treating us or or hurting us in a way that you know that we don't want to be treated and moving along developmentally with their kids is, and if we're starting with this in middle school as we talked about earlier we're starting too late mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we're starting too late but but for those people but. who are listening, and I guess, where do they go? Where do they start? If mm-hmm. you're starting in middle school or even high school with your kid to say, hey, you know mm-hmm. what? I heard this podcast. I'm reading this book. Yep. And I, it's really important I talk to you about these things. Yeah. So it's going to make you want to throw up the first time. Basically, you know, those hard conversations are hard for a reason. And, you know, if I was Peggy Ornstein and I'd written her brilliant books, Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex, then maybe sex conversations would be easier for me. Um, As it is, you know, they still are really hard, but Mm -hmm. um, there isn't just one sex conversation. And likewise, there is not one drug and alcohol conversation. And they really need to be, as we mentioned before, developmentally appropriate. They need to happen often because, the thing that turns, and I know this, you know, I know this from experience as a teenager and from experience as a parent or as a teacher, that the minute we say, we need to have a talk, you know, we have, we're going to have that big monolithic talk, the teenager just immediately shuts down. But if the conversation is an ongoing, regular part of life, then, um, then it it becomes much easier. So Mm -hmm. going to it, the nice thing about having sort of making the mistake of not starting until a kid is older is you can go to them and you say, you can say, you know what? I read this book. I heard this thing, heard this podcast and I made a mistake and I want to do better. And so we haven't been talking about all of this stuff and we need to, and I've learned that's the other reason, by the way, that there's a ton of data in the book. I mean, the book I hope is a nice mix of story. I'm an English teacher. So, you know, I have to have the stories, a nice mix of stories and data because stories with 
without data or data without stories are, you know, are, it's just so difficult to read. But there's a ton of data in the book because data is is ammunition. Data is information. Data is empowering. And mm-hmm. so when we have the data to back up our statements uh, um, to kids, then again, we have more of their respect and more likely that they're going to actually believe us. So going to an adolescent saying, you know, I just, I I screwed up and I want to do better. And so we're going to start having these conversations and where would you like to start and bringing the kid as much as possible into some decisions about where you start and what you talk about and Mm -hmm. where and when and how and um, the uh, you know, and then there's the simple dumb tricks. They're not dumb; they work. Um, you know, when you're sitting side by side by a kid and not looking them in the eye, it's yep. easier to have these yep. conversations. That's why the car. Uh, I right. talk about. Um, we used to live down the road from the Dartmouth chair uh, from the Dartmouth Skiway when we lived in New Hampshire. We could walk there, and so. Uh, a lot of sex conversations happened on the chairlift. A friend of mine, Jen trapped. Hartstein, who's a therapist <laughs> yeah. for adolescents. Yeah, exactly. And trapped. Yeah. She has said that, you know, she will talk to adolescents any way they will talk to her. And if that means that they text her from the same room, she mm-hmm. will do that. Right. So meeting right. kids where they're willing to talk mm-hmm. and when they're willing to talk. And that's not always going to be on your schedule. And right. Um, last week I was almost late for a presentation, a virtual presentation I had to do because I was out on a long trip, a long drive with my kid. He's been practicing his driving and, uh, I got us lost kind of sorta on purpose because we were having a conversation that I knew was going good places and I didn't want it to end. So Mm -hmm. I just took one wrong turn. I directed him in one wrong turn and, um, the, just the floodgates just opened and we'd already been talking for like an hour, but there was something about, he just was in the right place and mm-hmm. I needed to capitalize that on that when he was in the right place to yeah. talk. Cause they're hardly ever going to do stuff on our schedule. And that's such an important message is like when those floodgates open, do everything you can to put everything else on hold because yeah. you don't know when that's going to happen again. Well, and you have to be willing to, to listen to them talk about like, Oh my gosh, if I have to have one more conversation about this YouTube, um, this YouTuber that I could care less about, I'm going to scream, but I'm going to continue to listen to that conversation because how on earth can I expect him to have respect for the things that I want to talk about if I'm not willing to give him the same respect? So, you know, there are a lot of conversations that I would love to just sort of tune out of, but I, you know, I can't because I need to give him the same respect I want from him. So just to, uh, to to let everyone know that um and to let you know Jess that your book has tons of narrative and when I'm preparing for podcasts I um do my best to read up on um all of the new stuff and the new books and you know I don't always have time to read everything I can honestly tell you um you had me hooked with your story oh, right from the beginning and I read your whole book right uh and I just it's so it's so it's such a nice mix of story of narrative of your vulnerability, which I um, I just want to highlight. I mean, your vulnerability is so powerful. Uh, for well, I everyone. have to give a shout out. Also, I couldn't have done those stories without um, Georgia and Brian. Two of the there are lots of quotes in there and lots of stories in mm-hmm. there, but Georgia and Brian in particular gave themselves over whole cloth and said, use it all. It's all important. Um, use mm. my real name. Those are Brian and Georgia are their yeah. real names. Um, they're yeah. now adults and they are doing great. Um, but mm. they both felt that it was really important to use their own names because they're really proud of what they've overcome. And the only way that their experiences had value for the world was in mm-hmm. helping teach other people how to avoid them. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about the fact that, you know, I, I love the gift of failure. It was my first book. I'm proud of it. But this, this was the book that mm. has made a lot of the bad stuff I had to go through in my life worth it. And this was the book I was born mm. to write. So I'm mm. really proud of it. I'm really proud of Georgia and Brian. I'm really proud of, you know, all of the stories that are in this book. And those were power. Those are powerful, powerful stories. And they're right, doing great. They're yeah, still doing great. Wonderful. I keep in touch with them. I'm so proud of both that's of them. Wonderful. All right. There's so much more. And everyone, you're going to have to, you're going to have to get more when you <laughs> get the book because there are so many recommendations. I mean, we just really hit the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more information. And yet it is time for the parent footprint moment question, Jess. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself and or your children. 
So it's actually, there. it's a spinoff of a story that I told in The Gift of Failure, which was that, you know, my The Gift of Failure, I, I wrote that book because I was so pissed off at the parents of my students for overparenting and rendering their kids helpless and undermining their learning because it turns out that overparenting actually undermines kids' ability to learn. And, uh, you know, I found out I was doing the exact same thing with my own kid. And I tell the two stories in the book. The first one is essentially that I found out that my nine-year-old didn't know how to tie his own shoes. And that was mm-hmm. totally my fault. Mm-hmm. I'd rendered him helpless. Um, but there's a story I started to tell and yet wasn't able to finish because the end, you know, it's as a parent, often we don't know how these things are going to turn out. It wasn't until many years later that I found out sort of how the story ends, which is my kid was in so much trouble um, for his math, um, was not doing his math homework or so I thought. And uh, he, we finally um, broke it down and realized that he was actually doing the homework. He just wasn't keeping track of it, putting it in his back or backpack hand again and that sort of stuff. And so finally, you know, math is getting a little better. It's coming a little bit easier for him. And he leaves his homework at home and I have to be at the school that day anyway. So, you know, my natural instinct is to take that homework for him, especially because he was getting teased by other kids by being that the kid who forgets everything. Mm -hmm. His math teacher was so mad at him. He was going to have to stay in from recess, which uh, on a very ideal, you know, that goes against my very ideals, keeping kids in from recess. I could save so much and I could show him how much I loved him, right? That I'm looking out for him and I love him. And so for all of those reasons, I knew I couldn't take that homework that day, that there had to be some consequences at some point in order to spur real change. And that day, actually, um, he he came home from school that day. And it turns out that um, the day for him, I was envisioning that it was a hellscape, that, you know, the day had gone terribly and that it was going to be really upsetting because he had to stay in and his teacher was probably mad. And I said, how'd your day go? And he said, you know, it went fine. And I said, well, what about the math homework? And he said, oh, yeah, well, I had to stay in from recess. And Mr. Dano said, even after I finished the math homework, that I couldn't go out and do recess with my friends until I came up, that this had gone on for too long. And I couldn't go out until I came up with a strategy for how I would do better next time. And that day he came up with... um, a checklist, which essentially was the strategy I had been promoting forever and ever and ever because it's my favorite. It's my favorite. But of course it had to be his idea. It couldn't be my idea. It had to be his idea. And for the next six years, five years, checklists have been his main strategy for Mm. not forgetting things. In fact, every year, he didn't do it this year, but for many years, he created a new checklist sort of as his needs changed for school, and it would go on a refrigerator. And I've kept them all because every mm-hmm. year they changed. And, you know, the first one started out with the first item on it was it was um, get dressed. So, like, yeah, you know, right. get dressed in the morning at that point was, you know, important for him to remember. But, you know, put homework in backpack was one of the items on that checklist. And so every time... I saw him standing in front of the refrigerator looking at the list while brushing his teeth, which was the last thing on his list for yep. his morning stuff. Yep. That was like the biggest parenting win ever because it could it was never about my strategies and it was never about my mm-hmm. ways of coping. It, it had to come from him. And so that, you know, coming to the realization that I'm undermining everything I want for my child when I save them from themselves. Mm. Um, Those moments have been, and there have been a couple of them that have come up since then that have just been huge learning moments for me and and, in recognizing what it is for me uh, that success as a parent. And and all because of your awareness that led you to not doing something. Right. Well, because taking the homework on that day, that night on my checklist of like what it means to be a good parent, I would have been able to check off. I was a good parent today because I took his homework to school. I showed him love. I had his back. That would have checked it off on that day. But he's 17 now. And the thing that allows me to check it off in a much bigger way is not taking that homework that day, not living in that emergency, but raising a kid who knew how to do better next time. That's the bigger check mark for me. And, and no, the difference between those two took mm-hmm. longer than I'd like to admit. <laughs> you got there. You got there yeah. and, and he yeah. benefited. 
Well, Jess, thank you for a uh, just such a uh, enriched, uh, meaningful discussion, and for sharing yourself with everyone. I mean, sharing your oh, life, your you. experience with everyone, and um, this has been such a uh, this has been such a gift. Please, oh, tell, thank you so much. Tell everyone where they can, uh, you know, your book, your podcast, and all of the other stuff you have in in the works. Well, everything is at um, jessicalahey.com. And if, in fact, if you want a signed copy of the book, there are two bookstores here in Vermont that um, where I travel a couple times a week to go sign and personalize books, and then they ship them out. Um, I have been shocked, actually, by how many adolescents are reading this book right now. Mm, so um, I, I didn't I expected at some point that I would possibly sort of make an adolescent version of this book, but it turns out that there are a lot of adolescents actually reading this book, which is wonderful. I'm loving that. Um, but a lot of parents have been giving this book and having me sign it to kids, um, which has been really, really interesting, actually. I think I think it's a cool thing to do. So anyway, if you cool. are interested in a signed copy of the book um, at jessicalahey.com, I have links to both of those bookstores here in Vermont. Very cool. And you don't have to write a book on this. You can write a different book, right? Sounds like the, uh, the adolescents are eating it up. Yeah. It's, well, it's, it's, yeah. I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually working on book three right now. And so I'm a little relieved right now that I don't have to, you know, do that book part two. So I'm, I'm excited nice. about the next thing. Well, I will look forward to, um, hopefully us talking about your next book, number three, cool. when that happens. Cool. Excellent. All right, everyone. That concludes our show for today. As always, be that person you want your child to become. Remember, they're always looking. They're always watching. It is all actually about you being a healthy and engaged adult. And the rest will follow. They will follow. Um, if you like this show, please send it to other people. Subscribe. Become a part of our community. We'd love to have you. And as always, I will leave you with the guiding question. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.